Hey everyone and welcome to episode two of the Spud Fit Podcast. I had the pleasure to sit down with none other than Dr. Kim Williams. He is uh, the outgoing president of the American Co- College of Cardiology. He has a, a long and distinguished career as a cardiologist and also something that maybe not so many people know about is he's a former tennis professional. So he was in Melbourne for two reasons. One was to be the keynote speaker at the uh, Nutrition in Health Symposium and the other was to attend the Australian Open. We'll talk more about those things during the podcast. Uh, this was a little bit of a rushed one. I, I was uh, able to squeeze in a little bit of time with uh, Dr. Kim between him having breakfast and going to the tennis, basically. So we didn't get to speak for as long as I would have liked to, but it was a good conversation anyway. I really enjoyed sitting down with him. He's a really uh, energetic, uh, lively character. He's, he's got an amazing smile and uh, just a really, really warm, friendly person. It was, it was nice to sit down and have this chat with him. Uh, we recorded it in the foyer of his hotel. So throughout the recording, you're probably going to hear a little bit of background noise. It's not too bad because we recorded it, started at 7 a.m. So there wasn't too many people around, but there was a little bit of background noise and uh, there's not much I can do about that. But uh, I don't think it's too distracting. So we'll, uh, we'll push on and have this conversation. I hope you enjoy it and uh, on to the show. All right, episode two of the Spudfit podcast. We're here with Dr. Kim Williams. Uh, he's the outgoing president of the American College of Cardiology. Uh, in Melbourne for a couple of reasons, one of which is to do uh, the keynote lecture at the Melbourne Nutrition in Health Symposium. And the other, you could explain the other side if you like, Dr. Kim. Certainly, Uh, thank you for having me. This is my 17th Australian Open. 17th? Yeah, I used to be a professional tennis player and uh, it got to the point where I wasn't coaching big time anymore, I was working too much, had to get away, had to get some tennis. And of all the grand slams, this one is the one that has the most attractiveness in terms of the fun that people have. Yep. And so they call it the happy slam. Yeah. And, uh, I, I approached uh, Tennis Australia with my East End club, which I owned at the time. Uh, oh, yeah. Could we have a corporate relationship and get tickets? And they said yes, and I've been coming ever since. Cool. I live in Melbourne. I haven't been to 17 oh, yeah. <laughs> Grand Slams. Uh, so, so, yeah, one of the things that intrigued me about you is that you're a former professional tennis player. And uh, I, I spent quite a bit of time researching you, but I wasn't able to find a lot of information about tennis. There's a lot of information about your cardiology career. Right. But uh, whenever I searched for Kim Williams, professional tennis player, I tended to get Serena Williams or Venus Williams or <laughs> <laughs> a lot of other Williams. So, with, a, yeah. with good reason. So <laughs> my biggest prize money would have been 1975 and 1976. There was no internet. The fact that I was that probably contributes to the lack of Google results. <laughs> That's right, and I and I wasn't playing ATP events. I played yeah. a couple of small qualifiers, that sort yeah. of thing. I was sort of the, the when I say I was a, a professional tennis player, it was really more that if I won the local tournaments, I would get more lessons. So I taught. Okay. I taught. I actually still am a certified pro- professional okay. tennis oh, cool. teacher and coach. Yep. And those those teaching fees actually got me through medical school. All right, uh, but it had a couple of other uh, some 
some very good sidelights. One is I had a kid who I brought up as a tennis player who has a couple of national titles. I and, read uh, that, yeah. And then um, the most recent president of the you know, United States Tennis Association was a kid that I started in one of my inner city teaching programs. So I was very proud that someone came out of there and yeah. became a, a real uh, superstar in tennis. And who was that? Katrina Adams. She got up to number... Oh, I know the name. Yeah, she, she got up to number 70 in the world in singles, okay. top 10 in doubles. But more importantly, it's what she's given back to the community. Uh, she went from uh, the Chicago area to New York after her playing career was done, okay. coaching for the United States Tennis Association, and then um, uh, became the executive director of the Harlem Junior Tennis and Education Program. Big program right, that yeah. brought, brought us guys like James Blake. But All right, okay. for every tennis player they produce, they produce a massive number of minority kids who end up going to, to colleges. So yeah. James Blake went to Harvard. These kids are going, in, they're going places, and they're going to yeah, change well, the world. The success rate of becoming a successful professional tennis player must right. be fairly low. So you, there's got to be a lot of other kids that come through the system for you to produce one you know, household name. That's exactly so, right. And then yeah. I've, been, I've been there. I've seen what they do. It really should be the Har Harlem Junior Education and Tennis Program. It's yeah, much yeah. bigger on the education Definitely. side. I've, uh, m in a former life, I was a PE teacher in, yes. in school for quite a few years. So, uh, yeah, I've seen plenty of times the effect that uh, a good uh, grounding in sport can have on just the overall education and life skills and just right. character building. That's right. Um, Cross-fertilization cross in terms of discipline and thoughtfulness. Yes. Yeah. Particularly yeah, tennis. So you said you were studying while you were playing tennis and funding your, your uh, degrees, I, I guess. And uh, so can you tell us a little bit about how you, you got interested in medicine and, uh, and cardiology more specifically? So you can actually still hear the reason that I'm interested in medicine. Mm -hmm. I, had, I was around a mother who smoked. If there are any mothers uh, out there who smoke, you got to get it away from the kids. I ended up with um, recurrent pulmonary diseases and you know, when it's always upper respiratory or lower respiratory with me. And so someone else would get really, really sick. I won't accept yeah, the kind okay. of thing that, I'm, that you hear now in my voice. And that um, having to seek a lot of care as a kid in the inner city of Chicago, not having a lot of resources, not having the Australia Medicare system where you can ah, actually okay, go places yeah. and get care, uh, high levels of care, um, taught me that something needed to be done. And I thought the best way to try to fix the system was to actually become a physician. Um, yeah. So I was actually stimulated to healthcare by uh, having trouble with sick care. Okay, and so how did the, the transition work then from, becoming, uh, from being a professional athlete to being a professional uh, docker? They uh, really uh, were simultaneous. Uh, the hard part was being in a qualifier for the US Open and having to make a decision as I got further and further in the tournament and I would actually had beaten the top seed and so I was, right. I was expected to win the tournament. And then I would have had a conflict between going to the US Open for the first time ever and going back to medical school. Yeah. Fortunately, it's hard to imagine I'm using that word, but fortunately in the semifinals up uh, a set and a break, I hurt my back. Uh, I continued playing, but I lost it in three yeah. sets. And I ended up limping my way back to Chicago and going to medical school on time. I didn't have to approach the dean about, yeah. I need to take a year off. <laughs> uh, and I didn't need to um, delay my medical career. I mean, as much as I love tennis and as much as it was able to do for me personally, I really wouldn't have given one year of, you know, which I would have had to do. Once if yeah. you didn't start, you're done for that yeah. year. Uh, I wouldn't really have traded that y any year of my professional 
physician career yeah. uh, for tennis. So that's just the way it, that's the yeah, way I look well, at it now. I bet at the time when that was happening, you were probably pretty devastated. Well, um, it was, I, believe it or not, the gut-wrenching part was the quarterfinals, being in the number one seed, 6-2, six, 6-2, two, yeah. six, two, and realizing that if he's beating everybody else in the draw and I could win this thing, what am I going to tell the dean? Am I really going to do this? And my coach was after me. You got to do it. You got to take at least a year. You got to see as far yeah. as you can go. The back injury was, believe it or not, it was a relief. Okay. So no decision time, to be made. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Because <laughs> I, I imagined that at the time you would have been devastated about the whole thing, but that conflict was already there. Oh boy. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's interesting. So, yeah. well, that's that. It's really cool that you're uh, you're involved in this uh, career that. At, even at that point in time, right. you, you were pretty excited about being involved in. So, Indeed. you know, if we could all spend our lives uh, working on careers that we're into, then, yeah. Then you never a, work a day. Good. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Right. So what, what was your diet like as a professional tennis player then? So it's interesting that um, I grew up as a vegetarian uh, starting at about age 11 when my okay. mom ditched her job, went back to school, and had a junior college professor who said that, cholesterol in animal products cause heart disease and no one should ever eat them. Right. And so I became... And an that debate's still going on today. <laughs> well, it's pretty clear evidence. Yes, the People yes, who are debating it have usually some curious interest yeah, uh, yeah. in debating it. Anyway, um, we can come back to that. Indeed. indeed. As it turns <laughs> out, uh, uh, I was an ovo-lacto-vegetarian. We didn't have nearly as much uh, uh, data as we do now about that. And so avoiding cancer and you know, colon cancer and all this stuff with, by not eating red meat uh, was pretty attractive. Uh, that changed when I got married and, I, and I'm looking at the, uh, trying to you know, design something that fits everyone in a family, A and B. Uh, the American Heart Association diet was really low fat and focusing so much on that so that I started eating chicken and fish. Yep. So it became a went from really ovo lacto to semi vegetarian, yep. and uh, it wasn't until um, in my late forties, pretty much after my heavy coaching career, when my kid aged out of playing national tournaments and I didn't have him on the tennis court twice a day every yep. day, um, I actually realized that my own uh, cholesterol level had taken off. Uh, gotten to a level that probably would okay. have been fatal within a few years. All right. And, uh, so I, that's is does exercise help keep cholesterol levels down? It really down? does. Okay. That's exercise, not something I knew. And, uh, but also, uh, the cholesterol starts off very low when you're young. Yeah. And it, it tends to increase with age, but it tends to not be completely linear. You get yeah. in about mid-40s, late-40s, and it can take off. Yeah, and okay. So... So I learned my lesson. Uh, I've been fortunate to hear about Dean Ornish's diet, uh, which has no animal products and yep. uh, has reversed heart disease. I looked into it and uh, changed my diet that day, and six weeks later, my cholesterol was normal. You changed it on the spot that day? On the, on the spot, yes. All right. Even so, dinner was different than what, it, what you had planned, or did you start the next day? Oh. So, Andrew, <laughs> i got to be honest. If I'm t speaking to a lot of people... Yeah. I never liked eating animal products. Yeah, yeah, okay. So, it, it's, so it's, I don't want to be disingenuous saying, yeah. oh, you can just change cold turkey, no pun intended. Yeah, yeah. It's, I never liked them anyway. Yeah, so yeah, it's kind enough. of like, uh, you know, so I feel yeah. for people yeah. who really grow up liking it yeah. and fe feeling a craving for it. Yeah, yeah. I never had it for a second. Yeah, that was, that was me. I, when I first did my, uh, me and my wife decided to do a month-long trial of veganism just to see how it was and... <sighs> I thought I'd probably go back to not being vegan at the end, but 
the night before we started, I stuffed as much meat and cheese into me as I could fit. You know, <laughs> I was like, this is, it's going to be a month until I can have this again. I'm just going to make the most of this right now. <laughs> Great. Yeah, but yeah, we never went back. But anyway, that's, that's, uh, that's my story. Let's talk about it. Well, you can ask me questions if you want, but whatever. Yeah, I certainly um, <laughs> so, uh So how did people react? As a, you know, a cardiologist, it, it was probably at the time, well, still not widely accepted as being the, the best uh, way to eat. And, you know, I imagine that you're still in the, in the vast minority as far as cardiologists go. So how did people react when you were decided to be vegan and your colleagues started finding out about it? Did you get some pushback? Or? Well, it's interesting that um, being in the leadership of the American College of Cardiology and uh, when I was at University of Chicago and then Wayne State, it really wasn't much of a deal. That is, there were people who were kosher. There were people who had allergies. There were people who, uh, South Asians, who were vegetarians over lacto. And so m the fact that I had a different meal wasn't that big of a deal. Yeah, okay. And I, you know, that old thing about, you know, uh, uh, I don't know if people do this, a variation of this joke in Australia, yeah. but it goes something like uh, uh, a, a priest and a rabbi walk in a room and yeah. it's usually a third person in this yeah. case they say the priest the rabbi and the vegan walk into yeah. the room which one does the most evangelizing <laughs> and that you know i i'd heard that but i never was one of those people yeah and then one day um as i was going to into my vice presidency having been elected to the leadership of the college one of the staff members said i'm really interested in your vegan vegan diet um we'd like you to do a blog oh, okay about it and i said Okay, I wasn't. I had no idea what it was going to do. Yeah. What it did is it it uh, got picked up by the New York Times and uh, Dean Ornish and Caldwell Esselstyn and all of these gurus of uh, realizing that they had yeah. a colleague in cardiology yeah. uh, who had a voice, which I didn't even realize I had. <laughs> uh, all of a sudden, it became a really big deal. You know, New York Times went to Chicago Tribune and all, yeah. all over. And so I, I ended up um, having an opportunity to talk about plant-based nutrition um, that has continued. I really welcome it because uh, what I've realized along the way is that this is something that extends life and can reduce disease burden. And I'm sorry to report to you that not only is the number one cause of death in the United States heart disease, and it's been that way since 1918, but it's also the number one cause of death in cardiologists. Really? Yeah. Oh, wow, I, that's an amazing stat. No one, no one ever thinks about this. Yeah. You know, but my electrician doesn't have a problem with his wiring. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so why are heart doctors yeah. dying of heart disease? It's because we're really good at treating it and we're really not so good at preventing it. Yeah, so okay. That is an amazing stat that I, yeah, I'm, I'm a little bit shocked to have heard that, to be honest. Yeah, yeah I actually yeah. lost a good friend the other day from Indianapolis, oh. and I, it's still very sad. Uh, yeah, particularly African-American cardiologists. Yes. We have more, more disease burden in the African-American community. Yeah, just in the African-American yeah. community in general, yeah. it's, it's more of a problem. And it's sim similar yeah. in Australia with the Aboriginal community is uh has a lot bigger problems with healthcare and uh disease and they you know higher mortality rate lower right. life expectancy all of right. that so right uh, i did read yeah. that the, the thing that's and it's very similar to you know and I, I, I don't know if aboriginals like the term black 
uh, African Americans do like do like the term black. Yeah, um, I've I've lived in Aboriginal communities, and I'm I can't really answer that. I'm not I mean, sure. <laughs> right. Yeah. But it, there's it seems to be something shared. The the outlier in our community is the Hispanic population, yeah. which is growing, expected to be actually the majority of people in uh, maybe 2050 oh, really? or so. Okay. And it's interesting that the Hispanic community has a large disease burden and has a longer life expectancy. So black, right. blacks have a mortality gap that's huge. Yeah. Hispanics live longer than whites in, in the United States now over the past few years. And so they All have right. a longer life yeah. of disease. That's not good either. Yeah. <laughs> when you think about it. Yeah, that's sort of a, that's a weird sort of dichotomy going on there. <laughs> it is. Yeah. So... Onto the nutrition part then, I read in the research before I decided to do my uh, year of only potatoes, I did a lot of reading and one of the books I read was uh, Dr. Coldwell Esselstyn's book, Prevent and Reverse Heart Disease. And in that he says that heart disease is a food-borne illness. Absolutely. And uh, everything else that I've read seems to agree with that. And uh, so yeah, you, you agree with that statement? That agree with it did? completely. Yeah. I mean, we do have some things that are congenital, like okay. let me just pick one. 2% of the population have what we call a bicuspid aortic valve. Okay. That's a fancy term meaning that the valve that leads to you, the, the give, gives blood to the right, blood, blood to the body of the completely out of the heart, is supposed to have three leaflets uh, three little components to it that open and close, and instead it has two. And you do okay with that until about f- age 50 or 60 or 70. And then uh, half the people, 60%, 70%, have some kind of aortic valve disease that really yeah. needs a valve replacement. My best friend's going through it right now, uh, and I, she's like 71. It's just right on time. Yeah. And so there are some things. There really are, Andrew, that are not foodborne, but gosh, that is yeah. a tiny, tiny component of the amount of coronary heart disease, hypertension, diabetic conditions affecting the blood vessels, affecting the heart muscle, almost all of which is avoidable. Yeah, okay, so how, how do we avoid it then? What, what sort of, how do we change our diets if we want to avoid heart disease? So we've been looking at that at Rush University with our little, uh, I like to say I have 4.75 vegans. <laughs> people say, what okay. the heck does that mean? Yeah. We have four vegans and one guy, uh, uh, one of our interventional cardiologists says he's vegan until 6 p.m. Okay, <laughs> so. I read a book, uh, I can't remember who it was by, but there's a book about being vegan until 6 p.m. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. it's a, a guy in New York, oh, what was his, I can't remember his name, but he's a, a food critic I in see. New York and he wrote a book called vegan, called vegan until 6 p.m. I actually bought it for my mom a couple of years ago. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. So yeah. maybe where he got it from, but yeah. the, I think it was more by his wife. That is, you can eat whatever you want, but dinner time is yeah. our area. Well, the interesting part is that uh, we do know that reducing animal products, if you look at uh, the Seventh-day Adventist experience in the United States, just reducing the animal product intake actually yeah. does improve outcomes. So, you know, vegan until 6 p.m. is better than a regular American yeah, diet. Yeah, it's a That's start, sure. isn't it? Yeah. It's a start. Yeah, okay. no, cool. So, uh, let, sorry. So, so I, I, uh, I digressed a little bit off of the uh, what our vegan group does. Oh, yeah, One sorry. of them is yeah. talking about behavior change. And behavior change is very different. Uh, we all experience it, you know, uh, quite fundamentally. Some, some of us yeah. feel like food is religion. And yeah. some f- people feel like food is really just a way to, you know, build muscle or food is just a way to keep enough energy to get to the next thing. And that spectrum makes it very different to try and uh, to deal with people with one prescription. You have to 
really come to people where they are. And that, uh, those are actually a couple lines from Dean Ornish, coming to people where yeah, they yeah. are. And, uh, and that's actually the name of his recent book, Spectrum. Oh, okay. Um, that really talks about I'll it. I'll have to read that one. I'm a fan of yeah. Dean Ornish too, but yeah. I, have, I didn't know he had a new book out, so I better, better look that one up. He, he's really <laughs> worth mentioning because he, and, uh, because he spent so much time documenting the effects. Uh, Esselstyn did as well. Um, but as a trained nuclear cardiologist, I always enjoyed the fact that uh, uh, he actually went and did nuclear studies so that you can see the blood flow to the heart before and after the diet and see it improve. Yeah. Without angiograms, without bypass surgery, without you know, any of the uh, stenting or things that we do, improve the blood flow from the yeah. inside. And that really is a much better solution. I always tell my patients who have had a stent placed, Okay, that stent, uh, it'll, on your little card, it tells you what kind of stent it was, and it tells you how big it was. How big is it? And they say, oh, it's uh, 3.5 3 uh, centimeters by 2.5 millimeters. I said, that's how much of your body is covered right now. The rest of the plaque is out there ready yeah, to right. make things happen, and you have to get rid of all of the rest of it. Yeah. And so we have to change your lifestyle. Yeah, okay, it's a scary thought. <laughs> it is. Uh, I was, I'm interested, uh, my big thing, my, my whole reason for doing the, the, my potato, year of potatoes, it's all about behaviour change. So I was interested to hear you talking about behaviour change. Uh, yeah, for me it was all about uh, if, I could, uh, if I could make my food boring and then try to find uh, other areas of life that were interesting, then it would force my brain to, uh, to be able to get comfort and emotional support and enjoyment from other areas of life. So the, the whole point of it for me was behaviour change. Do, do you have any thoughts on how to make these behaviour changes stick? Because like, a lot of people try a vegan or a plant-based diet and, and they stick with it for a short period of time and then go back to their old way of eating. So I know you're not a psychologist, but do you have well, any thoughts? Of, I do. Yeah, I do yeah. have thoughts and the thoughts are very striking. Um, doing this for now 14 years, trying to talk patients into, into doing this. Uh, I have several observations which are, yeah. make us all very uncomfortable. Yeah. And if, if I have a person with risk factors like cholesterol, high blood pressure, diabetes, mm -hmm. and they have a graduate degree in the United States, that would mean they finished yeah. college and went to med school, law school, business, yep. MBA, whatever, my odds of getting them to change their diet is way above 90%. Really? Yeah. Okay. So education seems to be a key feature. And it's interesting that when you look at risk factors for heart disease, yep. undereducation is one of the major ones. And under okay. edu being undereducated um, and, and having a high uh, degree of it in your community High poverty levels, high unemployment. These are big things that, that hurt heart disease in addition to yep. lifestyle. So any, anyway, so uh, having people come in who have a graduate degree, I know I got them. Yep. <laughs> okay, it was going to work pretty well. And I just give them all the data and yep. let them make a conclusion for themselves. And they choose to be in the good group. They choose okay. not to kill themselves. It's pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, other folks, uh, if I've got someone from my African-American community on the south side of Chicago um, they may not have that higher level education and, they, uh, and familiarity with the science. You can't go from that point of view. You have to talk uh, about the specific items that they are growing up that are helping them, which are a few, you know, mustard greens, collard greens, yep. things that a lot of other races don't eat, but African-Americans do, okay. and how to make that healthy. So I talk much more technically about how to do it uh, with, those types, with those patients. And my odds of success, 
I can get a 90% if they've had a heart attack or stroke. Yeah, okay. If after an event, it's easy to change almost anyone. Yeah, but before the event, it's not as easy. The motivation's a bit higher once they've uh, had that brush with death, so That's to exactly speak. Right. Yeah, okay. Uh, so what do you think we can do then just about educating the general population? Like, How can we make this a more... like The, the amount of data there is now and the, the number of studies that have been done that show that eliminating animal products and fats and things like that from your diet uh, that's good for your heart, how can we, how can we push this into the mainstream and, and make it accepted by, well, cardiologists for a start? Like, that's right. You know, how, that's right. I was going to say the general population, but cardiologists need to accept it first and then I, I guess, do we, need, do we need cardiologists to accept it? Should we just bypass them and go to the general population? I don't know. How do you think this should work? Well, I would say, at least in the United States, the way it's set up, and I think it's fairly similar here, you know, cardiology would be great for leadership, but having uh, primary care, family practice, the general practitioners understand the impact of lifestyle, uh, particularly diet. And so we actually are on a campaign to get publications out. Uh, review the literature. The literature is actually very strong. Uh, and if we can actually get the, all of the folks who are, who are interacting with patients who have the disease to understand the impact of diet, that would really work. Now, we were just starting. We have a nutrition subgroup at, um, at the American College of Cardiology that, sim that simply did a, a survey and found out that the vast majority of cardiologists had no nutrition in uh, education, okay. high school, college, medical school, internal medicine, cardiology, and then thereafter. So we have to provide that. Yeah. And so that's our job. That's a scary thought that you can go through so much education and, and not have any education right. on nutrition. It's all, all about drugs and disease states, and yeah. um, but we're missing an opportunity. Like I always yeah. like to say, we got to stop cleaning up the floor and turn off the faucet. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good way to put it. Because we are, as a we, I'm not involved in the profession, obviously, but uh, you know, medicine is very good at dealing with like people that have had a heart attack or you know, emergency uh, procedures, things that need to be done right now. But uh, as far as prevention goes, it seems not much is really happening. It's growing. So, it's, we have yeah. you know a couple of uh, real allies, the American College of uh, Lifestyle Medicine, American College of Preventive Medicine. Yeah. Uh, we're speaking to each other. Um, a lot of the plant-based nutrition groups are, have a real scientific bend. So we are, I think, yeah. I think it's, you're hearing the rumblings, yeah. and this will soon become mainstream. Okay, so there are a few, like I said before about cholesterol, there's a debate about cholesterol. Within, yes. the, within the science, within the data, there, it seems like there's not a lot of room for debate, but the debate is still happening. So... Yes. Let's, let's talk about that. So uh, there's, there's a lot in the last year or so, especially, there's a lot of people talking about bring back the fat. You know, we should be eating bacon, we should be eating butter, we should be having full cream milk, yes. uh, you know, eggs, everything. It's all good. So bring back the fat. What, what's your take on that? So uh, having lived through it, it's marketing. Yeah. Uh, we have big businesses that have a vested interest in selling product. And just like you sell Fords and Chevys in the United States, you have uh, people who are marketing. Yeah. It's just unfortunate that uh, their marketing is still legal, even though yeah. we had a White House uh, soon to be leaving that believed in the fruit and vegetable uh, yeah. push, uh, campaign and pushed it into schools. You still had um, things that ha are really could be fixed. Yeah. You know, I, I would put near the top of it. 
even though it's slightly changing subjects, is the, f the financial subsidies for uh, high fructose corn syrup in the United yep. States. Um, we were worried about it, but then there was a publication that came out a few months ago in the Journal of the American Medical Association that said that there had been a, a real campaign to hide the fact that sugar causes just as much heart disease, cardiovascular mortality, as animal products. Really? Yeah, and it was very That's sad. something I didn't know. Well, and it's, yeah. you know, it's a good lesson for us all. If yeah. you're going to do something nefarious and take you know, $50,000 from, from industry, yeah. hide the paperwork. Because yeah. after you die, somebody <laughs> will find it and then publish yeah. it in the General American Medical Association. Yeah. Um, but it, it did go along with recent publications that showed that sugar is uh, associated with increasing mortality and most okay. of it's cardiovascular. So then you have the saturated fat data, which is extremely strong, and then you have cholesterol data, which in terms of, uh, is so strong in terms of treatment. You could t take a bad diet, okay? Mm. You could even have an event, stroke or heart yeah. attack. You could treat just the cholesterol. Don't fix anything else. Just treat the cholesterol, yeah. and the subsequent heart attack rate goes tremendously lower. Yeah. Now, people argue that the statin drugs in our country that do all this, um, by the way, they're really not so good if you're the medic if you're Medicare, you're the insurer. Yeah. These drugs are your nightmare. <laughs> because people are not well and people do not die. Yeah. And if okay. you if you're paying for it, <laughs> you gosh. Yeah. And so as it turns out, um, those drugs are capable of improving outcomes dramatically yeah. um, by lowering cholesterol and other inflammatory markers. Uh, but but you also have the animal protein. You have a yeah. wonderful um, publication, a series of publications from the Nurses Health Study follow-up looking at dietary intake of various foods, and they have a good correlation between uh, pro animal protein of, of various types and outcomes. And it turns out the big surprise, number one, the, me arguing with the egg board, which I did, um, okay. about cholesterol and how many eggs you should eat and tr their influence on our dietary guidelines. It turns out that they were a little bit right. Yeah. That it, the statistical significance of the relationship between egg consumption and heart disease wasn't there. It was a 12% okay. increase in death, cardiovascular death if you eat eggs, 12% with fish, 12% with chicken. Yeah. But chicken and fish met statistical significance, meaning yeah. there was a solid evidence. So why wasn't the data solid? These are nurses taking in food and yeah. putting a diary and then dying. Well, it turns out if you looked at the cancer rates, eggs were associated with more cancer, more cancer uh, okay. than red meat, more cancer really? than processed red meat. That's interesting because those processed and red meats have been added to the World Health Organization's list of of uh, can ca known carcinogens exactly. in the last year or so. Well, they, and, and eggs are, have a higher correlation. Well, it's, it's just one publication. It's yeah. very convincing because there's so yeah. many hundreds of thousands of people. But the fact of the matter is it finally explained my little dichotomy. Yeah. That is, you know, for all you statisticians out there, you know <laughs> that your error bars get wider when yeah. there's less observations. And since dead people don't have heart attacks, yeah. <laughs> you can't get that yeah. good coral, that solid correlation between added eggs and heart disease. So anyway, um, the bottom line for all-cause mortality, processed red meat was worse. Yep. Eggs was second. Um, regular red meat was third. Uh, fish, chicken, dairy, um, they were all statistically significantly increased uh, when you compare them with vegetable protein uh, associated with increased mortality. Yeah, and that's, that's really interesting for most people, I think, because 
a lot of people choose chicken or fish because it's supposed to be more heart healthy and yes. uh, and really maybe it's just less heart bad that's exactly than, well said yeah. i was going to say a little less die a little less death yeah that's <laughs> right. either way you yeah. got it right okay so let's talk about some other factors then um a big uh part of my journey has been before i before i started well during the beginning of my potato only year uh i was clinically depressed and uh and suffered with anxiety as well and uh and i do think that switching my <coughs> diet to potatoes only played a big part in uh in helping me get over my depression which is not really causing me any trouble anymore uh, i wonder how that i've read a lot about saying that stress contributes to heart disease uh, and where you can tell me if you think that's right or wrong but Mm -hmm. also if i figured that if stress plays a part perhaps depression would play a part as well is there some sort of link there i haven't read anything about it myself this is just Mm -hmm. something i came up with on the way here this morning that i wonder if depression's related so so there's a, a couple of things that are worth mentioning one is in terms of stress what are the mechanisms? Well, you increase your cortisol levels because your adrenal yeah. glands get stimulated. You increase your adrenaline levels. That increases heart rate and blood pressure. So the stress on blood vessels increases at the time when you're metabolically poisoning them with higher insulin levels and the like. So stress tends to give you a lot of central obesity, more uh, pre-diabetes and the like. And so uh, anything that you can do to relieve the stress will actually should improve outcomes. Then if you switch over to talking about depression, there, I don't have a lot of good data that says depression causes heart attacks, but mm. we have the opposite data that people who have heart attacks frequently become depressed, and okay. if there's depression and heart disease, the outcome is much worse. Yeah. So I'm glad that you were taking a, a look and looking at anything that you could do to, to help us with that. Uh, and if plant-based nutrition would help that in, in the general population, that would be tremendous. Yeah, it does seem like there there is... Uh from my reading anyway a fair bit of evidence out there that yes. diet can have a big impact on depression right um, I did so, see the, yeah. the calorie uh, it's spelled with an E instead of the O the yeah. calorie 2 trial was recently published and actually talked about um, depression and sexual function both dramatically increasing and they actually all they did was take that American diet and cut the number of calories dramatically okay that by definition reduced yeah. the amount of meat consumption yeah and it really did work pretty well. Yeah, well, the stuff I've read has been more about uh, um, eating plants to produce, uh, helps the body to produce the right hormones that it needs to, uh, you know, serotonin and dopamine and things like that. So anyway, that's uh, that's interesting. What about uh, oils? Oils is another one that uh, I've read a fair bit about that guys like Coldwell Esselstyn and uh, Dr. John McDougall would say we should remove oils from our diet. Do you have thoughts on that? So if you if you look at um, the Pret-A-Med, which is not a Mediterranean, would be more of a semi-vegetarian diet. Yep. It, it has a lot of olive oil, and Caldwell-Esselstyn yep. really ha- has a good approach on that, saying, yeah, that diet was able to reduce cardiovascular events about 30%, 37%. Yep. His diet is trying to eliminate them, not reduce them. Yep. That's a really good point. Um, we need more randomized trials about yep. this. I can tell you that there are people, I know David Katz at Yale, who's a nutrition guru uh, and cardiologist, is really saying that it's not even, not fat that's a problem, not even saturated fat that is a problem, it's animal fat. 
That's yeah. the problem. And that if you're focusing on vegetable fats, you don't increase cardiovascular mortality. Okay. You don't have the adverse effects on blood vessels that we've seen that have been known for 30 years. Yeah. Um, those are all interesting points of view. When I'm with the, you know, when I'm talking to Joel Furman about, or, or talking about his diet with the grains and John McDougall with the starches and yeah. Dean Ornish with low levels of fat, um, uh, and Esselstyn with no fat at all, and they all have pretty good outcomes. Yeah. Why? Because there's no animals. Yeah. That's that's basically okay. my point of view is that, and I c it could be that one day we will have a randomized trial that'll tell us which of these five diets or or so yeah. is the best one. Um, but right now, what they share is that one little element that makes all the animal rights people happy yeah. <laughs> and seems to make the cardiologist taking care of the patient very happy. Yeah. Okay. So. Maybe, maybe not for oils, but definitely the, the animal products. Are, right. So what do I, good, well, yeah. one of those John yeah. McDougall lines is a pretty good one. Yeah. It says the fat you eat is the fat you wear. So if yeah. you're overweight, I would definitely tend more toward the Esselstyn type of, or yeah. McDougall type of diet with yeah. no fat. I believe that. Yeah. And if you've, <coughs> if you've already had a heart attack, would you then say definitely get rid of the oils as well? Or? I, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that, that's because the regression data we don't have, com again, we don't have comparative data, yeah. but the little snippets of information that we have would say that the regression could be faster yeah. with a no animal diet with no fat. Okay. Uh, so last couple of nutrition specific questions. So what about uh, taking supplements? So you read a lot of, uh, right. you know, obviously the supplement companies want us to take supplements, but then you read, I mean, I've read about uh, beta-carotene was a, a big one a long time ago where they said we need to take beta-carotene because it's great for us and it turned out to be not so good. And, That's right. Uh, so what are you, what's your take on supplements, vi well, vi multivitamin pills and things like that? While, I, while you're on that, uh, if it's okay, let me finish that list quickly for cardiovascular okay. studies. Yeah. Uh, it was beta-carotene, it was vitamin C, folic acid, niacin. There were a whole list of things that, that vitamin E that fell down in randomized trials. Observational okay. trials would say, oh yeah, they're good for you. Yep. And then you do a randomized trial and none of them really helped. Yep. And so we are actually um, looking for evidence wherever it exists that these things would be very helpful with one exception. There's one thing that should never be tested because people test it all the time and it, the outcome is not good. Yep. And that is B12 deficiency. Yep. And so people say, oh, I have to eat animals so I can B12, eat B12. That's completely not true. Yep. Mammals do not make B12. Cows don't make it, humans don't make it. The reason that cows have B12 in their body is because they eat soil. They're eating stuff off the ground, yeah. and they're eating. They never wash their vegetables. Yeah. We tend to wash our vegetables, so we should either eat the dirt, which I wouldn't recommend, yeah. or take a B12 supplement. Yeah. that's interesting because that was part of my research before I started my yes. potato thing. Good. Was about B12. I ended up supplementing with B12, Perfect. but there was. Yeah, in theory, if I ate organic potatoes and maybe didn't I didn't them. do the best job of washing them, perhaps I could have got B12 <laughs> that way. But Indeed. that wasn't something I wanted to play around with. Exactly. So I decided to supplement B12. And um, yeah, so you, you, that's basically your take as well. Just let's supplement that's B12 right. and we don't need to worry about the other I, things. I always, I always tell yeah. my patients who seriously take this, they come yeah. back and I've said, Dr. Williams, I've changed completely. I'm a vegan. I said, okay, I need you to do two things. You yeah. just take two supplementary things. Number one, 
is B12. Number yep. two, you want to increase the supplement that you send to your retirement fund because you're going to live longer. <laughs> That's a good, I like that one. <laughs> All right, last one, last one for nutrition side of things is uh, alcohol. So last, uh, last year I, I continued drinking alcohol. It was not a huge amount, I just a, a few beers every now and then. Uh, and I, I had a lot of people complain to me about that. And my take on it was that I was focusing on the big problem in, in my life was the way I ate. That was number one. So I just wanted to focus on one thing at a time. Turns out this year I, I, I've not, maybe I've had a couple of drinks this year and not much, but I'm feeling now that the potato thing's over, I'm feeling less and less inclined to drink. I guess my focus has shifted a bit since uh, I'm not worried about potatoes and that anymore. Anyway, long-winded question. What's your, uh, <laughs> what's your thoughts on alcohol consumption? So it's interesting um, for our vegan community, and a lot, a lot of people are very yeah. concerned about having any contact with any animal products, yeah. that most of the wines that we have are not vegan. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I had actually didn't, I learned that in Hobart yesterday. Okay. <laughs> um, and, and the whole thing was explained to me. But yeah. the fact is the matter, there probably isn't any cholesterol, so it wouldn't affect yeah. me personally. Um, I would say that we, we still struggle with, with studies about uh, cardiovascular mortality and alcohol. There seems to be this uh, moderation seems to be the best and folks like me who do not drink at all yeah. have a higher cardiovascular mortality. I'm pretty sure they're not vegans when they're talking about that, yeah. so I'm not so worried about it. But I, I, so I, I don't have any real good solid epidemiologic data on yeah. plant-based nutrition and alcohol, but I can tell you one thing. Um, that a good friend of mine that I trained with uh, when I was chief of cardiology in uh, a similar area uh, in Detroit. He was in another part of Michigan. And he actually, uh, Dr. George Abella, was interested in the crystal formation of cholesterol. It's, he says that most of the heart attacks occur because, you know, everyone's done that little experiment with the putting a string in water and then mm -hmm. putting enough sugar in it, and then the, then the crystals start to form yeah. on the string. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay? Apparently, you exceed, to get the crystal on the string, you exceed a certain concentration, and it doesn't just precipitate out, it actually gets, makes these crystals. Well, it happens with cholesterol, apparently, and it can happen inside a plaque. Whether it's ingested cholesterol, you get to a point where there's so much cholesterol in a plaque that it forms these crystals. These crystals break out through the lining of the artery, and if, if, if you haven't Googled this, George Abella, yeah. cholesterol crystals and look yeah, at the pictures I haven't, I haven't it would be yeah. s no one you know none, none of the lay people ever look at it but if they looked yeah. at it they would never eat cholesterol again because yeah. they don't want these spikes coming in the inside of one of their arteries yeah okay so i said george how can you get rid of it? how can you stop it from happening well one is keep your cholesterol levels very yeah. low another one is to take the solution with the crystal where he, he lets it cool mm. it actually show, forms the crystals and triples in size yeah uh if you put one of the statin drugs, the ones that have do such a great job at lowering cholesterol, if you put some, a little bit of the statin drug in there, it doesn't crystallize. Really? The other thing okay. that stops it from crystallizing is alcohol. Ah, okay. <laughs> so anyway, that was a long-winded yeah. answer to say that there may be, there's yeah. possibly, that even though I don't drink, there may yeah. be something to it where a little bit of alcohol is not a, a bad thing for yeah. coronary plaque. But that's, you know, going from basic science to a human yeah. condition was fraught with difficulty. Yeah, yeah. And so I, I really cited for interest so people will go on that website and look at those crystals and never eat the cholesterol yeah, again. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> And I, I'm guessing whatever, if alcohol is uh, 
if alcohol turns out to be a good idea, it's probably not going to be more than one or two glasses a day. Oh. I wouldn't have thought. Oh, absolutely. No. The, yeah. the data is very clear on that. Yeah. It's one drink for women, two drinks for men. Yeah. Yeah, obviously, it depends on your body size. Yeah. Anything above that is considered heavy drinking, which, increase, which increases cardiovascular yeah, mortality. Yeah, yeah. No okay. yeah. All right. We're, we're, it's, we've got to wrap this up in a few minutes and get absolutely. you off to play tennis. I got, uh, can I ask you two more questions? First sure. of all, what do you, this is a bit of a self-indulgent one, but how do you think uh, my year of eating only potatoes would have affected my own personal risk of heart disease and mortality? That so I'm sure the heart disease would go down. What I would wonder about is uh, any other vitamin levels? Did you ever get any blood tests? You, yeah, I got blood tests through the year. potassium didn't go really, really, really high? Because it's a lot of potassium. No, it didn't. Uh, did your blood pressure fall? Yes, it did. I, yeah. That I would expect. Yeah, yeah my blood pressure good fell, thing. my cholesterol fell. Uh, I can't remember all the values, but I do remember my doctor was happy and getting happier each time we <laughs> tested. <laughs> that is really tremendous. Yeah. I, well, I, I, congratulations on accomplishing it. I, I wish that we all had more data on it, but I suspect that it's really a good thing. Yeah, okay, cool. And last question then. Mm -hmm. uh, Donald Trump, when you get back to uh, the US after the Australian Open, uh, calls you up and says, Dr. Williams, I want you to be the Surgeon General. <laughs> What's your, what's your first item? What are you tackling first if you're the Surgeon General? I've been getting myself in a whole lot of trouble here, but <laughs> let, me, let me put it this way. Uh, I was always a Republican voting for Democrats, so, <laughs> so, both, so both sides can yell at me. Um, I voted for the most recent Democratic president, and while he was Commander-in-Chief, yeah. he asked the American population to give President-elect Trump a chance to lead. Yeah. And I'm going to do that until yeah. he proves that he can't. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, anything. I mean, I've had a, a lot of good presidents, yeah. some I didn't agree with, but the one that I agree with the most, oh, Barack, Barack Obama, yeah. asked us to do this, yeah. and I'm just going to suck it up and do it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and enough, so yeah. if he asked me to serve, I would definitely figure out a way to do it. Yeah. Um, but the interesting part for me is that uh, in healthcare, Donald Trump has already mentioned something that uh, I'm not, it's a major issue for us. I know we're running out of time, but yep. let me just say That's right. a major issue for us is pharmaceutical pricing. I did see States. him talk about that, and I haven't, he hasn't said a lot of things that I've been happy with, but that was, a, that was something. So <laughs> after I was rubbing yeah. the bruise from me falling on the floor, yeah. okay, uh, yeah. I, w I was you know, pleasantly surprised that he would take this on. As you may, you may not know this, yeah. but there are only two countries on the two developed countries on the planet that do not have price controls on drugs. Yeah. That's United States and New Zealand. Really? New Zealand doesn't need them. They have rational people. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, but in the United States, um, there's a new cholesterol medicine, for example, that costs $14,000 per year. And I've been prescribing it, and none yes. of my inner city African American Hispanic patients can afford it. And yeah, my graduate degree—I couldn't afford it. <laughs> well, my graduate degree, full professionals who yeah. you know run some marketing company say, "Oh yeah, not a problem." And they take yeah. it, and their cholesterol dramatically drops. Yeah. The drug does work. The drug will save lives, and it'll increase healthcare disparities. Yeah, right. So if he's going to take this on, yeah. I'm welcoming it. Give him yeah. a chance to lead. Yeah. Okay. So. Well, yeah, I think we probably got to we got to finish it up now. Let's get you off to play tennis. I Fantastic. Don't wanna, but uh, yeah, thanks so much for joining us, and I'm looking forward to uh, to hearing you and others speak in a couple of days. And uh, yeah, enjoy the Australian Open, and yeah, thank you for talking. I appreciate the time. I really do. It's All been right. great. All right, All right, thanks. Nice to meet you, and spot up, everybody. All right, take care. <laughs> there it is. What a guy, right? 
I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. It was a real honor and a privilege to uh, sit down with Dr. Kim Williams and, uh, and have that conversation that you just heard. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, then the best thing you can do for me is to share it with your friends. Take a photo of yourself listening to it. Share it on Instagram. Share it on uh, Facebook or Twitter or whatever. And, uh, and tell people to you know, just share my message. Share my, help, me, help me get the word out. That'd be great. If you're interested in more in what I'm doing as well, you can get a copy of the Do-It-Yourself Spud Fit Challenge from Amazon or uh, you can get it through my website too, www.spudfit.com. There's all sorts of information on that website about how I did my Spud Fit Challenge and there's also all sorts of links to other things you can do and information you can get. You can also read the show notes on the website to get uh, information and links to other things that we talked about uh, during that podcast. So thanks everyone for listening and uh, I'll see you next week. Spud up. Spud up.